0: Well, welcome again to City Life this dreary day. It's lit in here, so it's good to see all your faces. Uh, Thank you for coming here to worship with us. Uh, We are in a series called Myth Busting, continuing in that. So if you have your Bible, uh, if you don't have your Bible, there's Bibles in the pews. Maybe you got an app on your phone. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 tonight. But even before we get digging, as I see some blue shirts here, can I just give uh, SLT a shout out tonight? Saturday Life team. Uh, most of us didn't want to walk to our car in this and they were out there putting out the signage, doing all that, opening up the trailer in this cold rain, right? And, uh, so thank you guys. Hopefully you thank them every week, but, but thank him, take them out to Tijuana flats and buy him dinner this week. So thank you guys. And if you've been coming for some time and you're thinking, man, I'd, I'd love to get involved. Maybe you got a specific talent. Maybe you play an instrument. Maybe you know stuff about tech, but maybe just like, I, I want to get plugged in. That's a great way to get involved. Is Anthony in here? No, not not at the moment. He spearheads that. So Amanda was up here doing the announcements. They lead SLT. So if you want to get involved, that's a great way to do it. Not just serving the church, but getting to know the people you serve with. Uh, But again, we are in a series called Myth Busting. Shout out to the show that used to be on the Discovery Channel. We looked at that a little bit when we launched this series about six weeks ago at the very beginning of January. How this was a show where they took uh, old wives tales, urban legends, and seeming myths, and they put them to the test. Kind of what we've been doing with churchy cliches and half-truths that we toss around the church. Do these really line up with scripture? So we talked about it. One of the ones they looked at was this whole idea that you only use 10% of your brain. If you could only unlock the other 90%, you probably would turn into a superhero or (laughs) unlock the life that you've always wanted to live. But they found that that's a myth. Many people have found that that's a myth, that you only use 10%. So if you've been hoping for that better life by unlocking the other 90%, sorry to be Debbie Downer tonight. But we've been talking about how the true issue is not the percentage of the brain that we're using, but, but so often the issue is the percentage of our brain that's taken up, up by half-truths and misconceptions that lead us to, to, to take missteps and be misled. But maybe you're not so much a Discovery Channel person. Maybe you're a little more HGTV. Anybody here watch HGTV? My wife, Steph, she, she likes Discovery Channel, but she loves HGTV. Anybody in anybody here watch Fixer Upper when that was on? Right, last episode was what? A little less than a year ago. All right, so Steph loved that show. And uh, what was it? Chip. Chip Gaines always talked about Demo Day. Got excited for Demo Day. And I share that because when it comes to discipleship, especially in the modern church where we've talked about this copy and paste theology where so much of it is made up of word on the street rather than the word of God. A lot of times we need to blast before we build. Have a nice little demo day. So this sermon series is kind of like a a demo month, demo couple months, where we're we're trying to tear down the half-truths that get in the way of the full truth that Jesus said, hey, when you grasp the full truth, it'll set you free. It's that open floor plan for your life that you've always wanted. So we're tearing down those half-truths. But the verse at the heart of the series that sparked the whole study is Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. It says in the Amplified Version that a little leaven A slight inclination to error leavens the whole batch. It perverts the concept of faith and misleads the church. So we've been asking in light of this verse and in light of this idea, how many of our missteps in life are because we're being misled by misconceptions? How many of our headaches are caused because we're operating according to half-truths? And how many heartaches do we hand out because we say these half-truths to others? Like this idea that love is colorblind. What harm does that do? we looked at this idea last week that, that women shouldn't have a platform in the church. They shouldn't be a part of the ministry that happens there. We've looked at these truths. Does it line up with scripture? Because, again, I mentioned fixer-upper. Some of you may still be hashtag too soon because you're still mourning the loss that happened. Less than a year ago, of the, the show, I think she probably used up the last bit of shiplap on the planet. Because I, don't, I didn't watch every show, but it seemed like every time I sat down with Steph, she was throwing shiplap up. And, uh... That's actually, let me not slander her. I, there's actually her Upper stats now because the show is complete. Apparently 33% of episodes she used shiplap, so now you know. But the stat I wanted to look at tonight is 50% of these episodes, right, they had to call the client because the clients start with a budget. It's like all these HGTV shows, it's like the memes you see. I, I hang bananas in my garage and help cats, and my budget's five million. Right? <laughs> you just—it's wild. But the, the budget is—is is, half the time, is it's not enough. So they've got to call the client mid-show. This is like the money uh, plot twist in these HGTV HGTV shows, whether it's Flip or Flop, Love It or List It. They like alliteration as much as most pastors, right? But that's the pivotal plot twist—the the money moment on HGTV when the person, the host, has to call the client and say. Look, your budget got busted because of this, this was unforeseen over here, right? There's, there's an entire army of animals in the attic. Something happened in the basement. The foundation's jacked up. So the budget is busted. Like, we're going to have to compromise some things. And that's when the, the decisions happen. That's when reality TV gets really good on HGTV. But what happens is, is things aren't quite as you planned because your budget wasn't big enough or good enough. And this ties into what we're examining tonight as I want to look at half-truths that surround this idea of faith and following Christ and walking out our faith. Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, as we looked at in autumn, as we spent the entire autumn in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end, Jesus compares a life of discipleship, a life of faith as we're following him. He compares it to building a house. So we get the analogy of building the house on the sand or building the house on the rock. And we've got dreams and plans for our lives. Yet in our lives, there's almost things that we would like to renovate. There's things that we would like to change, relationships that need repairing, pain that we would love removed, situations that need a miracle. Our house needs a renovation and a touch from God. And I think sometimes we look at faith as if it's our budget. And If we have enough faith, we should be able to fix anything. And if things aren't quite as we planned, it's because our budget or our faith wasn't big enough. If you could have a name it, claim it, doubt-free, certain, count it as done faith, then you are able to fix anything. I mean, come on, we sang it in worship tonight. Jesus says, if you have a a faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So again, how come spiritually I can't just knock out and have an open floor plan spiritually? But the equation I think we operate so often with our faith is that if we have enough faith, our prayers will be answered. And if the object of our prayer isn't answered, then you didn't have enough faith. This gets spoken in the church back and forth, this idea. Maybe not verbatim, but so often and too often. And you can probably already imagine that sometimes it can do harm and it can hurt. But that's why, like we looked at with don't judge. We looked at last week with these statements about women in the church. It's important to look at context of Scripture, the content of Scripture, and how it holds up. And I want to look at tonight in Mark 9. Specifically where Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. And again, on face value, if I believe enough, if I have enough faith, then anything is possible. Right. Well, let's look at the content and context of this passage. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. I think I'll have about verse 20 through 24 on the screen, and then I'm going to keep reading. But here, Jesus and his A few of his disciples had just been on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they come down, and there's a child that's possessed by a spirit. And it says in verse 20, after the disciples couldn't cast it out, it says they brought him to Jesus. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell on the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsing him violently and came out. And the boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. You know, two things I want to look at specifically tonight. First is the context of this passage and what it shows us about this idea of faith as kind of like our budget and our currency and making sure that we have enough. Like, what does Jesus say to this father and what does he not say to this father that informs what we believe about faith? And then secondly, I want to look at the greater content and context of Scripture, looking at two other passages. But first, what Jesus said or, or didn't say to this father. Because can you imagine if he said the churchy cliche we often do to each other? He just said, God never gives you more than you can bear. Pass the father on a shoulder and walks away. Right? We, we quote this so often like it's straight out of the words of Jesus. God will never give you more than you can bear. And when we say it, it's with a good heart. It's meant to encourage, to reassure us that life won't be too hard. Yes, life will have challenges, but God knows your limits and he will never overdo it. Yet imagine in this passage, this father of this boy who's possessed and the, the emotional angst he's in, the psychological turmoil this father is in. And maybe you look at this image of, of the son being thrown in the dirt or, or, or towards fires and, and you think about peers in your life or ones you love in your life who have been thrown into the fire of addiction, be it alcohol or pornography or opioids, right? Maybe it's somebody you know that's been thrown in the dirt of chronic pain degenerative conditions, that unless there's a miracle, they're, they're not going to get better. Wrestling with that reality often feels like more than we can bear. And so when people say this, it often doesn't land as they want it to. Because it's, you come into a place like this to worship, and it's hard to even form the words in praise and worship because of what you're going through. And then when you do, right, they get choked out by tears. Oh, but God will never give you more than you can bear, Right? But again, often those words don't hit the mark as we wish they would. And you know what's problematic is the unspoken emphasis. God never gives you more than you can bear. What's the emphasis? You, your strength, what you can bear. And I think we have this picture of what a strong faith looks like. And that a strong faith stays positive in the face of panic. It masters positive thinking. It can picture positive outcomes no matter what. And again, if you have this, this, this doubt-free, certainty, count it as done faith, then you can ask for anything and it will be given to you. We act like God's reputation sometimes is contingent on our ability to look like we're holding it all together in public when in private. We're not there. But we think, oh, that's what a strong faith looks like. That's, that's what strong faith is. But here in this passage in Mark chapter 9, that's not what this father does. This father doesn't fake his trust he doesn't put on a strong face or a facade of strength to come to Jesus. He comes to Christ and he says, basically, I believe you can do this, but I'm, I'm not certain of it. He shook. He comes in his spiritual brokenness and poverty and takes what little faith he has. But what he does is important. He attaches it to Christ. You know, when we have this picture of, of that being a strong faith, just having, being able to picture positive outcomes no matter what and And and, and the strength of our faith and measuring how strong is my faith. Ultimately, we can step into this trap where we put faith in our faith rather than faith in Jesus. You know, Chris didn't know what I was preaching on tonight, but in worship to pause and say, hey, let's focus on the cross. Let's focus on the work of Jesus Christ because that's where we place our faith. And that's what saves us. Not the strength of your faith or how you would assess where your faith is at. It's the object of your faith that saves you. You know, D.L. Moody, the theologian, once described three kinds of faith, and I'll never forget them. There's struggling faith, he compared that to somebody just out in the ocean, treading water, desperate for survival, but they haven't given up. Then there's clinging faith, where you got a hold of something that's that's giving you hope. Like, you're, you're holding on to the edge of that boat, and you're holding on for dear life. And then there's resting faith, where you're in the boat, and you're at rest in your faith, and you're able to pull others in and help others. Now, in life, you'll probably experience all three. You might drift between all three as as life comes at you and sometimes hits you with curveballs. But what we need to remember is, again, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. If you're out floating in the middle of the ocean, you might have a lot of faith and a very tight grip on a really heavy rock. That's not going to help you. But if you have a weak, white-knuckled grip on something that, that, that can save you like a boat or a ship, that will save you and it's not, the, it's not the, the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. Jesus Christ, the work of the cross, the redemption that comes through the empty grave, and the grace and mercy that we receive through that. It's truly what saves us, Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, what does this mean in terms of what we're talking about? It means that the good news isn't that God doesn't give you more than you can bear. The good news is that he won't give you more than he can handle or he can bear. And just to get straight to the point, this phrase, everything is possible for the one who believes. It's not a blank check that turns God into a genie or your spiritual Chip and Joanna Gaines that can just renovate whatever you want and fix anything and fix everything. Everything is possible to the one who believes because he puts no limits on God's strength. He's got faith in God's strength, his almighty sovereignty. And even if, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if he doesn't, we still have faith and we still put our faith in his strength. Just a reminder to, to make his strength the object of your faith. Make Jesus Christ the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. Because again, when we get this picture of, of a strong faith being what we've talked about, we can begin to think that weakness is the opposite of faith. But weakness is not what you and I should be afraid of. Listen, weakness is not what we should be afraid of. It's our delusion of strength. This idea that we've got it all together, right? I'm master of my faith. The end of last year, many of you know, Steph had not one but two brain surgeries. The one in November was scheduled. The one a month after wasn't scheduled. Came out of nowhere. So we were in the hospital for weeks and weeks. right? And the thing I realized sitting in this hospital for most of the end of last year was just how little I control in life. Like I think I've got this delusion of how much I control in my life. But man, something like that hits and you're like, no, I really don't control a whole lot. Somebody commented uh, recently, you're drawing a lot more. I'm like, yeah, that's one thing in my life I can control. I control the pen. I can control the outcome. And even then sometimes Raj sneaks his arm up. Like I don't see him coming. I got to keep, up, I gotta focus on what I'm drawing, but I got to keep my eye out for him because he'll grab the arm, yank the pen. And it's like, oh, come on. So I don't, even, I don't even control that when you think about it. But when we were, it sounds morbid, but when we were in the hospital, especially the second time, just wrestling with this idea of suffering and reading about it, listening to other people's testimonies about walking through suffering with God. And there was a gentleman who his kidneys failed him. So he had surgery after surgery after surgery for years. And what struck him more than anything else as he walked through this was just how much of his faith or what he called his faith in God was really a faith in his ability, his physical health and that he could get stuff done. And when that was stripped from him, When he became weak, he realized just how little faith he truly had in God. And it made him reassess everything. But you think about it, our good health so often feeds our self-reliance and this feel like I got things under control rather than our gratitude and our worship. But every once in a while, weakness or suffering comes and knocks over our self-reliance. But here's what's beautiful. Weakness isn't a dead end, right? It's a doorway. It's an opportunity to take the faith that we've maybe placed in ourselves Our reliance on ourselves and our abilities and to put it in the one who's truly strong again, to put it back in Jesus Christ. It's how Paul could say in in 2 Corinthians that he boasts in his weakness because God's power works best in weakness. It's in weakness that you come to know a strength you've never known before because you come to know God. Not to mention an entire sermon that could be preached on, you look at the New Testament in and James and, and, and Corinthians, where it talks about the work God does in us when we go through trials and suffering, the ways we grow and become stronger. But I, I look at this picture of strong faith because I think sometimes we expect the answer, 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 answer to our prayers and to our faith-filled prayers to be the situation that would bring safety and comfort. But I think sometimes when God answers our prayer, it's not what we would think, because the very situation that reveals our weakness. Can reattach us to his strength again and sometimes it doesn't look like we would want it to look but you know what what else Jesus doesn't say to the father he doesn't say God won't give you more than you can bear but the father also comes to Jesus and basically says look I believe but I'm struggling in this unbelief and Jesus kind of <laughs> kind of snaps at him right he's like if you can then help us and Jesus is like if I can <laughs> You know who you're talking to? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. See all my followers? You know who I am? Come back when you have a little more faith, right? Go work on your faith and come back when you got enough for me to work what I need to work in your life. Only he doesn't say that. It's not like the call in the middle of the Fix Upper episode where he's like, there's an issue with your budget. Uh, you're going to have to adjust your expectations. No, he, he heals the son while the father's still struggling with doubts and struggling with unbelief. You know, another flawed equation that we operate from is that either either you're running in faith and you got it made or you're stuck in unbelief. We handle tension so poorly. And there's, a, there's always this mix of faith and struggling to believe. You know, the father, though, throws his unbelief at the feet of Jesus. The father asks for help from Jesus as he is. He's a man struggling with doubt. And take note, these doubts don't disqualify him. I think we get afraid of doubt like it's a nemesis of our faith. But listen, the opposite of faith isn't doubt. If you look at Scripture, the opposite of faith is actually certainty. Right? Faith is, is this thoughts of these unknown. And so often we, we get stirred with questions and doubts. But that's not what you should ultimately be afraid of. But maybe you would say, I've read Mark, Pastor Justin, just three chapters before this. In Mark 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth, goes to his hometown, and they're basically disqualified because of their doubt. They see Jesus, they've known Jesus since he was a little kid, and it's like uh, the old J-Lo lyric, you know, don't be fooled by the followers he's got, he's still Jesus from the block, right? Some of y'all get that, some of y'all don't, don't worry about it. (laughs) But Jesus, it says, was amazed by their lack of faith. He was amazed by their unbelief. It says, basically, they didn't see any miracles because of their unbelief. So you got to ask the question. They doubted and were disqualified. They had unbelief, and Jesus said, well, enough, Right? This father, however, he's wrestling with unbelief, and Jesus embraces him where he's at. What's the difference? Well, see, Nazareth refused to believe. Their doubt was one of cynical conclusion that Jesus, he's not all that in a bag of chips, right? We knew him when he was building tables. He's he's not all that. But the father, in Mark 9, he asks to believe. His doubt was a doubt of really, truly bewilderment. He was seeking answers, and he knew where to go with them. He went to Jesus Christ. So you have to ask yourself, When you're wrestling with questions and doubt, is this driving me to a cynicism that suffocates my faith? Or is this driving me to ask questions and dig for answers? Because the whole reason we're in this series is because that can sometimes be a good thing to wrestle with the questions you're wrestling with. Sometimes the digging for answers is what makes room for seeds that bring fruit. Sometimes the digging for answers is what makes room for that new foundation that's not on the sand of half-truths, but it's on the, the firm foundation that comes with the full truth that sets us free. See, the Father... In, in coming to Jesus in unbelief and, and struggling with doubt, he's not rebelling against God, not running, against, running away from him. He's actually running to him. He's turning to Jesus, crying out in his confusion. You know, the, the poet Khalil Gibran, he's a, a Syrian-born poet, once wrote that doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. See, both faith and doubt are birthed by and related to what we don't see, the unseen. And so often, faith can take our doubt and give it reverence, and doubt, when properly wrestled with, can actually make our faith stronger. So often, again, we see faith as dangerous and kind of keep it at a distance. And I think, honestly, part of it's the, the fault of leaders of a church like myself who, are, who never want to say, I don't know, or I don't understand that, or I'll get back to you, right? There's a truth that God stumps me every day, right? There's a Yes, you want to get to a a place of revelation and knowledge and following him, but God is eternal and infinite. Trying to understand him fully is like trying to get to the end of a road that never ends, right? We're never going to fully understand God, and it's almost like he sets it up this way. Because in Scripture, he only reveals but so much of himself. He's bigger than any formula or something that we could package and put a bow on. Augustine, right, he once said, if you can comprehend it, it's not God. The ancient theologian, Augustine, he said, if you can comprehend it, it's not God. You know, if you've never, like if you would look at your, your, your faith walk and say, yeah, I've never wrestled with doubt. You've probably only gone surface level in your faith. You know, God won't always make sense to you. And when he doesn't make sense to you because his ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, it's a good practice to take your questions to him, take your doubts to him. The very name Israel in the Old Testament for God's people means to wrestle with God, to engage with God. So we should, when we come to these moments like the Father in Mark 9, come to Jesus with our questions, knowing that he is ultimately the answer. This prayer, I believe, but help me in my unbelief, it's not a statement for a weaker faith or a faith that that we should do better than. Because for those, it's honestly the prayer of a wrestling faith that's engaging with God. It's not a prayer we should keep at distance as much as a one we should embrace. Man, Jesus, I believe. But God, where there's unbelief, right, bring that in line with my belief. There's a pastor, Ray Ortland. He's written a couple books, but he says, my capacity for belief is not measured by my certainty, but by my need. Faith is not by bringing the great questions of existence under my control. Faith is turning to the Lord in his all-sufficiency for my desperate need to hear and receive what he has to say to me. Faith is is turning to the Lord. It's being focused on the Lord, right? Regardless of whether your faith would seem paralyzed by weakness or, or doubt wants to mute your faith, but man, faith is turning to the Lord, focused on the Lord, not paralyzed by my weakness, not silenced by my doubts. And briefly, I want to take this concept of faith and look at a couple different passages in Scripture, the content and context of Scripture as a whole, because no matter how many times he yanks my arm when I try to draw or, or open hand slaps me while we're hugging, whatever it is, I always look at Raj and, I, and I'm telling him, look, you're my favorite boy on the planet. Right, you're my favorite person, you know, outside your mom, whatever. But you're my favorite boy. You're my favorite kid. You're my favorite child. You're my favorite son. If we ever adopt again, right, I'm going to have to adjust that a little bit. Parenting one-on-one when you got more than one kid is you never admit favoritism, right? So, so all of a sudden he might stop hearing that. I don't know if that will traumatize him. I don't, Maybe I should talk to somebody, figure that out. Might have to start early or stop early. But sometimes I feel like approaching the Bible, it's like the same way. You're not supposed to have favorite scripture because does that somehow like lower other scripture? Does that make you vulnerable to like lightning strikes because you've taken the word of God and you put it in some hierarchy? But, but if you were to ask me what one of my favorite passages in scripture is, it would definitely one of them would be Romans 8. If not, my favorite passage in scripture. Because it has so many like mountaintop, magnificent verses The ones that we memorize, the ones that Lifeway has on like mouse pads, on, on mugs and T-shirts, that's half their apparel, right? Is just verses from Romans 8, right? Romans 8 explains so much of the mountaintop experiences in life, but it also, if you look at it, explains a lot of the valleys as well. But the, the probably chief verse, most memorized from Romans 8 is Romans 8, where it says, We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, the echoed cliche is often, well, everything happens for a reason. It's our remix of, of all things work together for good. That whatever is happening, there's a good reason. And Romans eight twenty eight becomes an assurance that everything will have a happy ending. Ultimately, reasons will be revealed. Everything you go through will turn out all right in the end. But then you collide with chronic pain, clinical depression, degenerative conditions, life-altering accidents that aren't even your, they happen to you. And you're left to deal with that. It leaves you forever changed. And we can get exhausted and weary trying harder and harder to do faith or hope gymnastics to think up a positive outcome. Or we become disenchanted with God thinking he didn't hold up his end of the deal. Right? If this is promising a happy ending, what's the deal? But it also... If you keep reading Romans 8, especially the verses right after this, where it talks about the the good of those who love God. Verses 29 and verses 30 right after this talk about our redemption, talks about our eternal security. Nothing that happens in life can intercept that. But presently, presently Romans 8 gives us a lot of information as well. Romans 8 says that creation is subjected to frustration, says that creation is in bondage to decay. Creation has been groaning. This groaning creation subject to decay is our present reality. And, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. But there's comfort in this reminder that we live in a fallen world. Because, again, when you subscribe to Romans 8.28 as, as promising a happy ending no matter what, and you don't see that happy ending, we think, man, either there was some cosmic accident up in heaven that screwed everything up or maybe God forgot about us right? The fruit of that is feelings of hopelessness, powerlessness, but our present reality is a groaning creation subject to decay. That's why nowhere in Scripture does suffering seem to take God or the Bible by surprise. Scripture prepares us to be ready for the things we'll face, not so that we'll live in fear, but so that we can meet life's groans with faith, meet it right in the face with faith. We have to stop pretending that faith makes life easier and fixes every problem. Your faith doesn't make life easier, but it attaches you to what's stronger. Ultimately, it makes you stronger because you're attached to Jesus Christ. You think about other verses we memorize in Romans 8, like we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. What does that verse imply? There's going to be things that we have to conquer. You don't conquer comfort. Right? You don't conquer your sofa. No, you conquer pain, problem, and issues. Right? Faith isn't, again, going to help you avoid all of life's problems, but it helps you overcome them and conquer them through Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death on the cross. So how much more can he not help us? But he still faced sin and death. Or, or another one, nothing can separate us from his love. What does that suggest? When well, you look at the verses right before it, there are things in life that may make us feel like we're separated from his love. I was reading psalms this week. I can't remember the chapter or verse, but David's basically like, in my panic, I thought, oh, I've been cut off from God. But then in that psalm, he remembers, no, actually, nothing can separate me from God. But this verse, nothing can separate you from his love, indicates that there will be things in life that might make you feel like you've been separated from his love. See, the hope we need is not found in trying to solve the mystery of suffering. But running to Jesus and knowing that nothing can separate us from his love, his presence, his promises. Another chapter might not be my favorite in Scripture, probably in like my top five. I'll work this out. I'll get this back to you. Maybe I'll post it somewhere, right? My top five Scriptures, all right? Hebrews 11 will be on there, too. It's the Hall of Faith, what some people call it. It's like the Hall of Fame For people of faith in Scripture. It starts in Hebrews 11.1. It gives us this definition of faith, and then it begins to look at people who walked in faith in their life. And reading the first half of the chapter is like wind being blown into your sails when it comes to faith. You just read example of example of God moving in these people's lives, and it can paint this picture of the Christian life as one of triumph and confidence. But you know Hebrews 11 deals with the equation we often operate with, that Hey, if I do the right thing in good faith, then God won't let anything bad happen to me in this life. Right? If God brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. But if you look at Hebrews 11 and you look at just life, faith leads many not off of, but onto a path of suffering. Look at the early church and the persecution they faced. Or look at the church outside of America today that's persecuted for their faith. And the author of Hebrews doesn't sweep this reality under the rug. After going through a who's who of faithful living through Scripture, he takes a turn. It's in verse, I think, 35. Yeah, verse 35, where literally in verse 35, I think he's like, mothers have seen their children raised. And then he says, but others were tortured, (laughs) refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, others... Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. You don't read this to your kids before they go to bed. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Hebrews 11 doesn't say, oh, they faced all this because they didn't have enough faith. No, Hebrews 11 is commending them. For their faith. But what did their faith look like? Their faith was placed in a hope or in a better life after the resurrection. You know, I think that's the gift of suffering. It's the gift of when life hits you with a curveball. It reminds us that this world and all its groaning, it's not our final home. Because when you live with a here and now mentality focused on this life, you want this life to be as predictable and pleasurable as possible. And it becomes jarring and disorienting when we're reminded again, no, we're part of a groaning creation bound to decay. But where Romans 8 reminds us of our present reality and it fortifies our faith, Hebrews 11 reminds us of our coming hope that can fuel our faith. Listen, are we called in this life to build God's church and usher in his kingdom and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be dispensers of grace in this region, in this zip code? Absolutely. That's our calling we see again and again in Scripture. Yet as we do that, creation is still going to need renewal and redemption. That's not going to come until Jesus Christ returns, and he resurrects all of it. But you know what's powerful in Mark 9, again, to return to that text, is that when it talks about the son being raised up by Jesus, and it says he rises up, Mark uses the same language in this passage as he does about the resurrection. When it says Christ is risen and resurrected, he uses the same words that he uses here, saying that essentially Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he arose. You know, after Hebrews 11, it goes through all these people, the ones that saw God's hand move in mighty ways and the ones that saw suffering. And it says in Hebrews 12, verse 1, that we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Because every one of them, regardless of what they saw in this life, they tasted resurrection. They're in heaven, right, that eternal security that couldn't be snatched away and they're watching us. But you know there's one witness that's key amongst all of them and that's Jesus Christ. Right? Who died and rose and he too is watching in love. Hebrews 11 reminds us that sometimes instead of God delivering us from our trials, he joins us in them. And that doesn't mean that God won't do things on our behalf in this world. That doesn't mean that God isn't a God of healing. That doesn't believe that God isn't a God that can work miracles today. <laughs> that doesn't mean that we forsake the verse in Psalms, that I believe that I'll see the goodness of God in the land of the living. It doesn't change that, but it just means that full deliverance and redemption, resurrection, it's not going to happen in this life. And if you can grasp this. No longer does suffering sucker punch your faith. It just pushes your faith back towards its final destination, eternity. So as suffering or just A hard twist or turn in your life replaced the lens of faith and eternity with a lens of fear or maybe a doubt that that paralyzes or anything like that. Maybe you're at a place where you'd be like, yeah, Jesus, I believe, but man, help me in my unbelief because I'm struggling. And I was practically... You know, we talked before, when you ask in prayer, be prepared to act, right? There's, there's faith, but then there's faith with works. And if you feel like you're in a place where, man, I need help in my unbelief, three very practical steps you can take. First, God's word. Romans says faith comes by hearing what? The word of God. You don't have to wait for somebody to say it to you. You can open it up and read it. Don't be a statistic. The statistic we've been talking about, that 82% of the church doesn't open their Bible outside of the weekend, right, when a pastor opens it in front of them. 82% never opens it at all. But if we base our faith and beliefs on truth, we should saturate ourselves with that truth. Secondly, though, prayer. Right, prayer During prayer, I recognize that I'm dependent on someone greater than me. I need someone. I'm not self-sufficient. Prayer reminds me that I'm weak, so I tap into God's strength. And when the disciples ask why they couldn't cast out this demon, no doubt they're looking for the right phrase the right words the right action what did we do wrong in that moment and Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer some people there's some manuscripts that say prayer and fasting so they they point to fasting but Jesus said hey when the bridegroom's here it's fitting that you're not fasting right so he's pointing to prayer the key is prayer but I don't think it was the prayer in the moment Jesus kind of just addresses the demon tells him hey Get out of here, buster. He doesn't have like a, a, a prayer or, or something that you would imitate in that moment. And I think that's key because the disciples want technique. God, when it comes to prayer, he wants your time. Right, when I think about people who have mastered prayer, it's not people that, man, they pray in the King James Version or they've got like these locked in prayers. No, they just return to prayer again and again and again. Those are the people that have mastered prayer because it's like the air they breathe. Sometimes it's in weakness. Man, sometimes it's a wash in doubt, but they're always returning. Sometimes we're looking for technique, but our Father, man, you can pray that in seconds. It's not flowery, yet God wants our time to come back to Him again and again. So, God's Word, prayer, and then obedience. Sometimes, again, doubt, unbelief, it can paralyze us. can strip us. Depression can strip us of our our sense of agency, that we're good for anything. But man, We've got all of scripture that reminds us what God is looking for from us. George McDonald says, obedience is the opener of eyes. I think that faith is more to do with obedience than we often make of it. Because in the end, what matters isn't how many doubts we had. In the end, what matters isn't whether we felt weak or strong in the moment we move forward. But did we move forward in obedience? You know, if I could have the worship team come up. Again, as I was reading in, in that hospital for that second surgery there for another like week and a half, I just turn to 1st peter because in 1st peter peter is writing to the church that's suffering he's writing to a church that was being violently persecuted and you might expect you know that no doubt they felt weak no doubt they had doubts they were probably a little shook and if they bought the half truth that enough faith would fix any and everything they would have crumbled satan would mock their belief and attack the character of god that hey he promised a happy ending what's happening now But Peter's letter, you read 1 Peter to the persecuted suffering church, it reads like marching orders. A call to obey and pursue God's promises even in the midst of their mess. He's telling them, look, your response and your actions shouldn't be based on what you're suffering, but it should be based on who you are in Jesus Christ, who you are in the midst of it. He's looking to restore their sense of identity, which restores their sense of agency. So as we're going to go back into worship, but just questions as we go into worship and we're worshiping God and we have a moment for prayer. Is just ask these questions. Man, has suffering tried to rob you of your identity? Has suffering tried to rob you of your hope, your enthusiasm? Has life in the way it's been for the past bit almost caused you or tempted you to confess that you're forsaken? Has doubt paralyzed you? Again, it's like those fun house mirrors. It can change the way we see God or the way He, we think he sees us. But as we go back into worship, if you would say yes to any of those questions, I, man, offer it up to God. Come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And if you need prayer, we got people in the back that'll pray for you. I would love to pray for you. Maybe for you tonight, you're, you would like the fathers come to God as you are and say, I believe and help me in my unbelief. And it would be the first time ever because for so long you've thought that you had to fix yourself. You have to get your faith to a certain level before Christ can save you. No, you come just like that, Father, as you are right now, and attach your hope and attach your life to Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, and that changes you. Don't wait to change yourself to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, let him change you. But for all of us tonight, no matter where we're at, if we could stand, we're gonna go back into worship, but I wanna pray. Jesus, I thank you that this picture we get of the Father in Mark 9, God, it's one that we can walk in. I thank you that you didn't say to him, I come back when you believe a little more, you fully realize who I am. No, you met him where he was at. Thank you as it promises in Jane that when we draw near to you, no matter, it doesn't say what condition we're in, but when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. God, I pray that you would meet us here tonight as we are, as we're wrestling with this or that. I pray that we would take it to you and with our questions, we would wrestle and engage with you. Jesus, I thank you that we can put our faith and our hope in the cross. In the work that you did that is the same yesterday, today, and forever that never changes. And tonight we worship you. We praise you for it. God, we enter into your presence again and and say just meet us here. Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts and a work in our minds. Silence the lies of the enemy, the half-truths of the enemy that would try to rob us of the freedom we have in you. Jesus, help us to truly lay hold of the truth that sets us free. Let that fuel our faith and our hope in Jesus' name as we worship.